Ladies and gentlemen. Ladies and gentlemen. We love movies with Gordon Hayden. This film blew me away. So that's against the rules, and you can't sit with us. Did we just become best friends? Yep. Hasta la vista, baby. And the winner is... We Love Movies with Gordon Hayden. Spin. Hello and welcome along to We Love Movies with me, Gordon Hayden. Coming up very shortly, we will be reviewing Elvis. It's the big film out this weekend from Moulin Rouge director Baz Luhrmann. Has he done the Elvis story justice? We will be finding out. Plus, we'll be taking a look at some of the worst films that have been released so far this year. So lots to come on We Love Movies. We Love Movies with Gordon Hayden on Spin. You are listening to We Love Movies. I'm Gordon Hayden and I'm joined by Olivia Fahey, Andy McCarroll and Chris Wasser. And we're going to take a look at what is out in cinemas this weekend. The big film in question is Elvis starring Austin Butler as Elvis Presley. And then we have Tom Hanks as Colonel Tom Parker, who was his manager, but more like a promoter because he had real no interest in the music whatsoever. But he is always seen by Elvis fans as the villain of the piece because he had a very strong hold over Elvis. And many feel that he also played a part in Elvis's downfall. But before we chat about it with the guys, here is a clip from Elvis. Are you born with destiny? Or does it just come knocking at your door? He's a young singer from Memphis, Tennessee. Give him a warm hayride welcome. Mr. Elvis Presley. Get a haircut, buttercup. In that moment, I watched that skinny boy transform into a superhero. So there is a little bit from Elvis. Andy McCarroll, Chris Wasser and Olivia Fahey join me now. Uh, Andy, plot-wise, what's going on here? Are we looking at this biopic as a full story of um, Elvis's uh, rise to fame and the downfall, as it were? Or are we just focusing in on a, a certain period of his life? So for anyone going into this completely blinkered, what sort of story are we getting here? This is everything. This is not like the the walk the line, the Johnny Cash thing. We're focused on a certain amount. This is literally from birth to death, every single part of Elvis. It's told suddenly through the eyes of Colonel Tom Parker, played by Tom Hanks, who is essentially a carny who spots this, you know, incredible singer. He realizes that he's found something special. No idea just how special it's going to turn out to be. And it's essentially Elvis's story of where he started off and then this guy and among other hangers on getting their claws into him and where the story ultimately has its its tragic end as most people will know it's been called a cautionary tale olivia and what was your feeling going into this movie did you know much about elvis were you aware of colonel tom parker because as i mentioned from the offset he has been viewed by many elvis fans as the villain of the piece yeah, I was aware because my family are actually big Elvis fans. So I have a cousin who like her 30th birthday, she went to Graceland and things like that. And my mum was a big Elvis fan as well. Um, it, it certainly was an interesting idea for them to take it from the Colonel's perspective and then execute the film, not really from the Colonel's perspective at all, in my opinion. Um, but I think the points that they touched on were handled in a very delicate manner. And I think that people who do know the story will be happy with how they sort of tackled like, of course, like his drug addiction and uh, dependency on opioids and things like that. Um, 
but overall there was definitely a few pieces in there that have been you know Hollywoodized and made it to seem one way when actually the reality was another the whole history versus versus Hollywood taking creative liberties and things like that as well so I think if people are more aware of the story they're going to flag it for those inaccuracies a bit more but those who aren't as familiar will probably be like oh that's interesting yeah, because I have spoken to someone who recently saw it and they were saying like afterwards they were Googling loads about the movie in order to find out what was real, what wasn't. Now, Chris, we should flag that you and I um, are looking forward to seeing Elvis. We haven't seen it yet. So we're really uh, coming at this with, uh, with you know, with, with an open mind. But is there any aspect of the Elvis story that you're really hoping will uh, be done justice in, in yeah. this uh, film? Well, actually, I, th- I do think the idea of a film uh, that, you know, shines a light on the sometimes unethical relationship between the Colonel and Elvis, uh, sometimes unethical, the usually unethical relationship there in terms of the business that went on. Uh, I think that might be good. Do I want to see, you know, am I, am I, excited about the fact that Baz Luhrmann has has made that film not really um you know I will I will I will be seeing this film very soon Gordon but at the same time Baz Luhrmann his films they don't I was going to say actually that they don't really do anything for me but they do do something to me which is that they often make me break out in hives mm-hmm. and you know even his original Red Curtain trilogy you know Moulin Rouge and Romeo and Juliet and Strictly Ballroom you know there is some magic there there really is and I can appreciate that he is a filmmaker unlike anyone else but at the same time I'm glad there's not that many filmmakers like him because sometimes it can just be too much it's like you know when you go see a Baz Luhrmann party or when you go see a Baz Luhrmann film you're stepping into this party that's just that just has too much of everything and you know his editing style his storytelling style you know his his kind of um, his reluctance to kind of you know ed, uh, uh, cut, cut, cut back as well that, that that sometimes annoys me I mean everything that you see about Baz Luhrmann sometimes stretches to you know the, the uh, to almost a three hour mark which is a bit too much and I realise that the Elvis and Colonel Tom Parker story you know it is massive but do I need do, do I want to see three hours of it? I'm 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 not that sure. So I I I would love to you know we've we've seen Elvis depicted on screen before by everyone from you know Kurt Russell through Michael Shannon, uh, Jonathan Rhys Myers, all you know decent and effective in their own ways. Austin Butler looks. As, as though he's left his mark on, 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 you know, the legend here. I'm just not sure if, if, if it's the, you know, if the, if the cradle to grave story is, is, is the right thing to do while also trying to tell the Tom Parker story. It just might be a bit too much. Andy. Yeah. Cause I was saying this to you off air that I wasn't like Chris there, the idea of a Baz Luhrmann Elvis film. I thought, Oh God, this is going to be really glossy, frothy and overly excessive. Whereas I would probably love a filmmaker like, Martin Scorsese or even Paul Thomas Anderson uh, to to get their hooks in the Elvis story because I feel like there might be almost grounded a little bit more in realism there as opposed to going down and go, making it a big Hollywood style production. So f- what did you take from uh, Baz Luhrmann's direction here? Like, do you think now that you've seen the film that he was the right man for the job? I think for an Elvis story, he was the perfect choice. It's just not this Elvis story. Olivia touched on it there and it's a great point that it's kind of framed as in this is going to be Colonel Tom Parker's story with Elvis on the periphery, but then completely abandons that and tells the Elvis story. Now, Baz Luhrmann and Elvis is a fantastic mix. Like you could have this ultra stylized, ultra fun, you know, Moulin Rouge, every bit of glitter and sequence thrown at the wall. But he tries to tell the kind of the serious side as well, you know, the manipulative side of, of Tom Parker the drug addiction, but everything is kind of very surface. And 
even if you know only like the like everyone will have the basic ideas of Elvis. Like if you're anyway, you know about you know you know he's had the coronal, you know he had like the '68 comeback special, and you know like the final days, the the residency in Vegas and becoming you know it's known as Fat Elvis. All of that is touched on, but there's nothing in that if you don't already know even the most basic thing. There's nothing to go. Oh, I, I come away now knowing, you know, I walk the line is kind of the obvious comparison. You know, the relationship he had with his younger brother and his father, and how that kind of led to everything later in life, which I didn't know going into that. There's nothing coming out of this where I think, okay, gee, that really added a layer to you know the mythos of Elvis. You know, the legend that everyone has this you know, idea of this icon. And instead, he, he kind of tries to have a foot in both worlds. He kind of tries to do the Scorsese thing while doing the Baz Luhrmann thing and kind of doesn't really commit to either. And as a result, the film suffers as a result and trying to tell such a vast story. I'd rather he would have focused on, let's say, the 68 comeback special, which, you know, would have been made for Baz Luhrmann with, you know, all the, the pageantry that goes with that rather than trying to tell, you know, cradle to the grave story. Yeah, if I could actually jump in there, I I, I agree with Andy, and um, I think you mentioned it, walked the line there at some stage that you know, it, it, wouldn't it be great to watch an Elvis film where it begins with him backstage and all of this stuff is behind him, but you're only going to get you know, uh, like the way like what Mangold did with Walk the Line that you know we start before a gig and then we go back to the beginning, but we're only going to go as far as that gig and maybe have that extra scene. I know Walk the Line ended with the scene with the proposal and stuff, but there's a you can make another two or three Johnny Cash films after the one that James Mangold gave us. And I think sometimes the biopics, trying to bite off too much, trying to tell a whole story, it just, it's, it's, it's just, the, the, you, you, it all fo- it begins to fall in on itself. Case in point, Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah. I know, oh, a lot of pe- I know an awful yeah. lot of people love Bohemian Rhapsody, but, but I think it's an absolute shambles. It's an, it is an absolute shambles. And the problem is because you have the likes of Brian May that's trying to give it this rose-tinted view. And I think with this, it seems like with Bohemian Rhapsody and this new Elvis film, granted now again, I should flag, I haven't seen this new Elvis, but we're getting another Wikipedia biopic. You know, yes, we're, we're going that's down. Yeah. That's yeah. what I feel we're, we're, we're getting here. I personally would love to see the last few days of Elvis. You know, again, the relationship with the Memphis Mafia. The, the, I think he went to Hawaii there on a holiday. And just those last few days where, you know, he just was no, in no physical state to go on that grueling tour. His body was starting to to wind down. And All of that is in this film, but you don't get it. It's almost like, you know, OK, we've got five minutes here. You go move on. And none of it gets to mm. sit with you. And you don't get to like, oh, my God, this was like you get kind of glimpses where you think just this, this life must have been absolutely awful at certain points. But it just okay. We're on to the next thing. Here's the you know the, the special. Here's the next tour. Here's the next movie, and it doesn't give you time to digest any of this. Yeah, and even like any of the bits of like his later in life, that's actually the moment where they actually cut it, and it's like, oh, and that was the last time we saw him, and it was like just as he was starting that crucial sort of like end of his life, as you were saying there, Gordon. Like that's the moment they were like they cut it there and it's like no that's that's an interesting point that's what we yeah. wanted to see <laughs> so yeah it was mm. I, I, I'm going to eventually touch on Austin Butler and Tom Hanks and their performances but just to get in just to before we do though just to drill into some of the relationships in the film because uh, I know a lot of people will be curious about Colonel Tom Parker but I'm also curious about the relationship with two of the most prominent women in Elvis's life uh, Priscilla Presley and his daughter Lisa Marie now if you kind of delve into the story, like when he met Priscilla, she was very young, but she only made 14. And they she married was 14, her, yeah. And she married at 16. And her parents had to essentially sign her over, like a moment of like guardianship, I think, you know what I mean, too, to Elvis, which if that happened now, you'd be kind of going, geez, something of almost very much like, there's a whole load of wrong going on there. And even back then, a whole load of wrong. But um, 
And then the relationship with Lisa Marie, a, a young girl that at times you kind of wonder, what was your relationship like with your dad? Because when she would have been born, he would have been really at the height of his drug use as well. So again, if we start with Priscilla, Andy, what, how does that relationship play out? Yeah, none of the kind of the the sordid nature of how they came about was touched on. It's done very much like, oh my God, I've been hit by lightning. I've met this love of my life who I wasn't really able to you know give the love she deserves to and that gets very soap opera as well where you don't really feel like like there's no legacy to her of what going out with you know the most famous person on the planet was like from a human side of that and you don't see from his side where he's like you know the most famous person in the world having to try and have a relationship with his with his wife and his daughter it's all very you know the the episode of the simpsons you know it's a black boy smithers throwing the bottle against the walls like oh damn you you know it's all very soap opera there's no no depth to anything there's no moments of real like human interaction with that it's all surface again which is you know Baz Luhrmann's kind of forte oh and Lisa Marie then as a matter of interest Olivia because if anyone sees uh the trailer there is a bit where he is cradling her and he kisses her on the cheek and again because this film seems like from from what you guys are saying, like it, it's just it's moving at such pace in order to tick the box, uh, tick the boxes of all these various uh, moments in his life that it, nothing's being allowed to breathe. Do we get much of a chance to see what the, the father figure that Elvis was? No, not really. And like the most touching moment between um, screen Elvis and Lisa Marie is literally like after himself and Priscilla have divorced and clearly Lisa Marie had been with him for a while and he's like, they're doing like the exchange of giving her back to the mother kind of thing uh, before he gets on a private jet and flies back to Vegas. Um, that's that's kind of the most that she's actually in the film Um as a whole. So like they really just didn't touch on it. And I think if memory serves me right, because it's actually been a few weeks since, um, since they had the, the press screening, but it, they don't even actually go into him and Lisa Marie's love story as much as they could have. They, it's actually even kind of glossed over like their wedding and everything um, in kind of like almost like a montage sequence. Like Andy, you can correct me if I'm wrong there, but I do, I only vaguely remember seeing like a glimpse of her in a wedding dress and that was it. Yeah, a nail on the head there. And the fact that you even can't recall, you know, any sort of, you know, depth of the relationship. Again, we keep going back to Walk the Line, which to me kind of is what the standard for these types of films mm-hmm. should be. You really got a sense of, you know, the, the relationship with June Carter and Johnny Cash. Whereas this is like, I don't see what the appeal for either person is in this relationship. Yeah. And I think also Olivia, is it DeLong? I think is how you pronounce for yeah. Poorly, poorly cast as well. Like she wasn't, like she wasn't a great fit for Priscilla for like Priscilla like as much as she was like quiet and timid when of course they first met because she was 14 um, I think she'd moved in with him and her parents as you said were they signed her over to him when she was 16 and I think she was 19 by the time they actually married Um, but it was a case of like she did sort of become her own person and a bit stronger but there was none of that in there it was just sort of like very much in Elvis's shadow sort of style thing, which I'm sure she was, but she was still able to like, she had a bit of like sway with him for certain things um, as their relationship went on because he absolutely idolized her. But they, the two of them just had like zero chemistry and you just didn't see any of that. And you even notice that even in the junket interviews, I'm kind of going, God, I would never have put her with the greatest respect as Priscilla Presley. Yeah, because mm. herself and Austin Butler, like even in the junket interviews, as I say, they didn't look like they had much chemistry there. And again, I another thing before we get into the the, the, the performances, I Elvis also was very controlling of Priscilla. Um, like she pretty much did everything he wanted to do. I don't know if that's even touched on. 
A little bit, a little bit. Like it's, uh, I think it, in the scene where she's leaving him, it's more touched on there than it is um, over the course of the film because they kind of focus more on the fact that Parker was controlling Elvis as opposed to Elvis also controlling certain situations as well. Ah, right. So in that sense, it, that I think that's where their focus was. So it didn't, it only literally touched on it just as she was like yelling at him saying, I'm leaving you kind of thing. That's kind of, it's, it's kind of interesting from what I can hear. And again, I haven't seen this film and I will. And don't you worry, I will probably be <laughs> <laughs> probably have a lot to say about it um and it's interesting well, it's just to touch on something that we, we we mentioned earlier about wanting to maybe see what other directors would have done with the Elvis story um this sounds very much like a Baz Luhrmann film which is a shame to go and make a film about Elvis and have it all you know have it be you know so much in you know in line with what the, the director's done before and if and if Paul Thomas Anderson had done it you can be guaranteed the film probably wouldn't have been about Elvis at all you know if Scorsese would have done it it would have been maybe a, a, a crime saga it's such a shame that someone hasn't given us you know from the sounds of it an Elvis film the same way that Dexter Fletcher gave us the Elton John film when you mm-hmm. think of Rocketman you don't think that's a Dexter Fletcher film he's a fantastic filmmaker I love I love everything that he's done so far but nobody calls it the Dexter Fletcher Elton John film it is just the definitive Elton John film. And um, how fun would it have been, actually, just on a final point, to see, to, for, for, for maybe even Baz Luhrmann, to have given us an Elvis musical? Mm-hmm. You touched on something there, which is one of the biggest problems I had with this, is that the soundtrack mixes in other artists. So you have, you know... Sorry, what? Yeah, yeah. you have uh, like... Oh, a, no. a Car- Cardi B has a, has a version of one of the songs as well. Oh, dear Sorry, Lord. You, you're, 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 mess- you're messing with me. No. There's a, a remix with Britney Spears Toxic. There's Doja Cat singing a, a version of the song in this. And I'm like, you have arguably the greatest back catalogue of music oh in history. My and you are splicing it in with like people who should never be mentioned. Like I should not be saying Doja Cat and Elvis in the same sentence. You've got ever. like the you've got the uh, the you know the problematic though beginnings of 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 American rock and roll and and oh wow. It's almost like he did what he tried to do with like the Great Gatsby soundtrack, where it was oh, still yeah. like twenties but modern. It's like he tried to do that with the, with the Elvis soundtrack as well, and that's it. Like some of the songs, I actually thought worked, but I didn't need them in the film. If they were on the soundtrack that you listen to like afterwards, and you're kind of like you've got the original and the the remix, that's fine. I just didn't need them in the film. See, for Ga- for Gatsby. I can get it, you know, because you're putting your modern twist in it. And Moulin Rouge, you're creating this sort of fairy tale like world. But Elvis' back catalogue should not mm-hmm. be touched. It should be treated like a listed building. You know what I mean? Like, what is he doing? Adding those in, a beggar's belief. Um, let's just talk about the performances here. Austin Butler, I will be honest with you, I, I did not know this man's work. Well, I, I didn't realise I had seen him before in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. He played Tex, uh, one of the uh, the main members of the Charles Manson gang and that eventually comes a cropper when he comes face to face with Brad Pitt. Uh, so I'm not going to spoil the ending. But um, what I again, he did seem like an unusual choice to play Elvis. Chris, just your thoughts initially uh, before we get the guy's take on Austin Butler. Did he seem like a left field choice for you? Were you aware of him much before um, uh, he, he took on this role? Uh, just from uh, the Tarantino film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which he's quite good in. He's so intense in it, but that role required him to be intense uh, as, as one of uh, uh, Manson's uh, men. Uh, the, the, the idea of giving 
you know, the, the, the role of this iconic music figure to a relative unknown, that's probably the best decision that, that, that Lorman's made here again, haven't seen the film, but you know, it does well for, you know, it does well for Butler's career that, you know, this, this could lead to, you know, some, some awards buzz. This will be, you know, uh, a jumping off point for, for, you know, for, for, for bigger roles. And I think it kind of, you know, it's not, I'm trying to think of some, you know, it's not as though Ryan Gosling's playing Elvis and people might be a bit iffy about that. It is good when you have like a, an actor that, you know, the wider public won't know. Um, although I, 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 I do recall, wasn't Butler part of five actors that, 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 you know, that, like Lerman had whittled it down to five actors. Wasn't Harry Styles in that list? Uh, Harry Styles, indeed, yeah, yeah. Agert and Miles Teller were the last few. Oh, um, Miles Teller would have been good. Maybe Miles, not for a bad, maybe not for a Baz Luhrmann film, but Miles Teller would have been very good. He would have been very like if we were talking about our Scorsese version or Paul yeah. Thomas Anderson, you could definitely see mm. him in there. Um, Austin but, Butler, I saw footage of him there during the week in an early rehearsal for the film, and I could not get over the singing voice. I was like, going, <laughs> it's like he's nailed it. I, mean, yeah. I couldn't get over it. And I know they have used some of the old Elvis recordings, but this definitely felt like it was his voice and he, he got it down. But how does he come across Andy and Livia as, uh, as Elvis? Andy, first I'll get your take on it because it's, it goes without saying it's massive shoes to fill, but it, this is also could be a star making turn for him, like for Rami Malek playing Freddie Mercury. Did he pull it off? He is incredible in this. He is. He belongs in the five-star film that this deserves, because everyone coming into this, you have your idea of you know the icon of Elvis, and it would be very easy to kind of slip into you know a Saturday Night Live or, or even Remy Malek to a certain point. He's doing an impression of Freddie Mercury. He doesn't do this here. He plays Elvis as Elvis, a character. It's not you know Elvis the icon or you know Elvis the singer. He is absolutely stunning in this. And the fact when they splice him with the real footage later, you're kind of guess and you're going, is that actually him or is this the real footage he is brilliant this is an incredible like you can't overstate how difficult this role is because everyone coming in will have their idea of which elvis they want and he does that absolutely he walks the line to, to quote another film on this he is the standout in this and i think in a better film we would be saying this guy should be getting all the oscar buzz that remy malik got i think because the film is so buried under everything else he might not get that but i i 100 think so far it's the best performance i've seen of the year we could see a star making turn here olivia from uh austin butler and he's raving about him but what about you he is elvis like that there's no other way to describe it he is the standout of this entire film. And I think as Chris was saying, like the best thing that they did was cast someone who was relatively unknown because then he was more believable. But there is even moments when you're looking at the screen and like he'll pull a face or he'll like just be like turn slightly and kind of just going, hang on a minute. Have they just like superimposed a bit of Elvis <laughs> over there? Or is that just really clever hair and makeup? And it is just clever hair and makeup. He embodied every inch of what the king of rock and roll is supposed to be. And it was just one of the most spectacular things. And I think that's what makes the film itself even more frustrating is because you have such a golden nugget in the center of this film. And yet it is 
top and tailed and sugar coated and all this type of other stuff. So it's like he deserved a better film because he is spectacular. And as you were saying, like he does sing the the younger Elvis stuff, not so much the older Elvis stuff. So I think it's once he hits Vegas that that's when they started using some of the older recordings. But everything else he has done, and you would not be able to tell the difference. You like literally, people are googling, wondering which songs did he sing and which ones did he not sing because they cannot tell the difference. And that's how good he was. Finally, just before we get scores, we also have to mention Tom Hanks as Colonel Tom Parker because the film, as we were saying from the get-go, is is framed around him recounting his relationship with Elvis and uh, how, I suppose, in one way, they're kind of saying, was he really the villain of the piece? And sure, look, when you see the film yourself, you'll be able to clearly see uh, where that all lands. But Tom Hanks as Colonel Tom Parker, with the greatest respect to Tom Hanks, two-time Academy Award winner, one of the greatest actors of his generation, as a manipulative villain, uh, I know he hasn't played that many villains in his career, but I don't know, Andy, if I see him as Colonel Tom Parker. How did you think he came across? This is very much a film of two performances, and I'm going to say something I never have said before, and I hope I never say again. Tom Hanks is the worst thing in this film. He plays this just like a like a fat-suited buffoon. He's like Cyril Sneer from The Raccoons. He is in a completely different film. And watching this, all I kept thinking is, I wish Philip Seymour Hoffman was still alive because if he could play this absolutely perfectly, like it's supposed to be this deathbed confession, but we get no sort of you know remorse or empathy for the character. And he's just this wild excess almost cartoon like character and it's anytime he's on the screen it kind of lowers the tone of the film it sinks it now the, the fatsu thing can work we saw colin Farrell as penguin and batman where he's like okay the performance goes past that this you're just like looking it's like something of like an eddie murphy film like norman which are like watching well, that's just tom hanks and the fatsu was he what's he doing here he's not a real character and anytime he is on screen or given long periods of time the film sinks and then it's Austin Butler's job to try, you know, raise it back up. But a, a rare statement where you turn around and go, Tom Hanks is terrible in this. Oh, no. OK, let's get scores out of 10. Then Olivia for Elvis, what are you giving it? Um, I'd give it a six uh, out of 10, purely just based on Austin Butler's performance, because I think if they just reframed the tops and tails not being from Colonel Parker's point of view, then it probably would have worked a lot better. But just purely based on Austin Butler himself, he deserves six out of 10 stars. And that's it. And Andy, for you, for Elvis, out of 10? I'm going to go slightly higher. I'm going to go seven for the same reasons Olivia said, but also the fact I'm a here. There's two types of people in this world: there's Beatles fans and Elvis fans, and I'm an Elvis fan. And to like see you know nearly three hours of a double Elvis album on screen with all the performances that I grew up watching, gets an extra star for me. But if you're if you're not an Elvis fan, it would definitely be more to the the sick side. Okay, thank you so much for that, guys. So Elvis, there not the big knockout that we were hoping and maybe it's down to the fact that Baz Luhrmann was he really the guy for the gig behind the scenes well that's it for part one of We Love Movies but coming up in the second half we will be taking a look at some of the worst films that have been released in cinemas so far this year we're back shortly We Love Movies with Gordon Hayden on Spin you are very welcome back to We Love Movies I'm Gordon Hayden I'm joined by Chris Wasser Andy McCarroll and Olivia Fahey and we're going to take a look now at some of the worst films that have been released so far this year Uh, Chris recently we only had Jurassic World Dominion which is 
I've only heard one good review of it. Like I've only heard one person saying, I should go along and see that. I thought it was really good. Most of the reviews have been damning. And I love the, there's a YouTuber by the name of the, uh, the Critical Drinker. And he did a great analysis of Jurassic World Dominion recently. And he was saying that bringing back the uh, old characters is like somebody jangling keys, trying to distract you and using nostalgia as the only real thrust to make you kind of come back and, and, and see this film. Because by all accounts, it's robbing ideas from all over the place. It hasn't an original bone in his body. And the whole film is more or less a, a, a series of chases. That's pretty much it. Yeah. Um, and that's a good analogy. I think the one I made was that, you know, it is a bit like going to see, you know, your favorite band reunite after 30 years. And then you realize all the instruments are out of tune and all the roadies have gone home and no one's around to help this, you know, once amazing tight, you know, uh, uh, fabulous bands just kind of, you know, sound great because the, the things that are coming out of, you know, uh, Alan Grant and Ian Malcolm and, and, and Ellie Sattler's mouth in this film, they just, they, they don't make any sense. And they're just, they're, it's just really sad. It's sad to see this, you know, uh, wonderful cast come back together and given such silly things to do. And I think Colin Trevorrow, that man couldn't direct his way out of a plastic bag. He is a hack. Uh, I just, he, he's made such a mess of this, you know, suppose I, I was going to call the, the, you know, the Jurassic saga, you know, they've just decided very, very, very late in the game, the same way the lads at Disney have decided that, you know, those nine Star Wars films were the, were the Skywalker saga. Ah, come on. We weren't calling them that, you know, five or six years ago, but they've decided now that this Jurassic era, this Jurassic saga, it was all one big story from the first Jurassic Park right up until now. It wasn't. It's reverse engineering, you know, and we're seeing too much of it in, you know, reverse engineering storytelling. We're seeing too much of it in, in cinema at the minute. It let it go. Just it's the same story over and over again. Rich people not learning from past mistakes, dinosaurs running around the place. The film doesn't even deliver on its promise that, you know, there might be some sort of like shift in balance, you know, if dinosaurs are real, if dinosaurs are on the earth at the same time as humans, if we're coexisting, if they're kind of, you know, trying to if we're if we're trying to share the world, it doesn't deliver on its promise. It it basically has this thing at the beginning of like two or three minutes where you see via, you know, shoddy fictional news network broadcasts what dinosaurs and animals living together look like and then that's it mm. and that's the kind of film that i thought we were going to guess so it's just it's all over the place and it, it is it's a just lazy yeah, there's no reason for any of them to come back like even like ellie and alan coming back it's like oh we need you to get in here into this lab yeah. to get the locust like but the character who gives them the case has already been in there has already seen them so what is the point in bringing them back and gordon on your point the the, the fantastic the video the critical drink going where he, he basically picks one scene and goes this is the issue with it there's a smuggler flying a plane and there's one ejector seat because this person didn't think they would ever be flying with anyone else and the ejector seat is in the back in the back row so why would the person who thinks they're flying alone put the ejector seat in a oh, wow. seat in the car where they have to unbuckle themselves walk out and then shoot off the whole reason is well we just need to separate these uh, the, these characters for a while so here's the best way to do it if you take any scene in this film you can drill holds through this a mile wide it is swiss cheese the movie oh andy listen i won't put you through the pain of it delving into even more because i want to give you more pain um ambulance by michael bay a man who has just discovered drones like he went drone tastic <laughs> with this one uh, ambulance and uh, michael bay like it, it, will he have his director's guild card removed it's just nonsense like the, even the Seth, like he's referencing his own films in it there's a reference to the rock in it and then one of the guys thinks that you know he's talking about the actor the rock quote unquote the actor and he just goes off and then it's like, oh, well, the sheriff's back in town. And again, talking about plot points, it's like, here's Jake Gyllenhaal's character. Like, 
who is basically Mysterio on all the cocaine in the world. And he's supposed to be this, you know, really intricate military precision bank robber. And five minutes before he's about to go off on a job, his friend shows up randomly and he's like, actually, great job you're here because we're actually down a guy for this job. He's like, you're supposed to be the best, most tactical person in the world and you couldn't count to five before you left the job. I just realized we, we need somebody else for this. Here, you'll do. And it's like, you can't say he's the best of the best of the best if you're having this on it. And every single person in it is like, oh, you're the best, but you've got an attitude problem and you need to do this. Need to, it, it's, it's like hot fuzz if you took all the jokes out of it. It is just absolute, it's 15 years too late. It's like trying to make Scream just after Scary Movie came out. It's like, we have done everything to death. You can't do this with a serious face anymore. And what about the use of the drones in this, Andy, in terms of using drones to film certain sequences? Because it's like Michael Bay, but it's, it's typical of him. He just goes overboard. It's like a kid with a new toy. It's like they're going to just use it to complete excess. Like there's scenes where two characters are talking in a bank and it has to have a drone flying over through the bank, go under the table, go down through the thing, go back around the side and come back over. And it's like, you, hang on, it, for somebody with an ego as big as him, when I see things like that, it just strikes as somebody who doesn't have the confidence in what they've written or what they're shooting to just let the scene play out. Everything has to have something tacked on. We can't have two people talking. We can't just have a police chief. It has to be a police chief shows up and you know the camera falls off the building, goes down, goes under the car. Okay, we can't just have a car. It has to be a vintage Volkswagen Beetle. He can't just be in a car. He needs to be in a Volkswagen Beetle with the world's biggest dog in the background showing up to a crime scene dressed like he's, you know, a football coach from the 70s. Like, who are these people? Like, who does he, like, who is this based on in the real world where a police chief shows up with his giant St. Bernard and his vintage Volkswagen Beetle while the camera flies off the cliff? It, it just makes no sense to anything. And all of this would be forgivable if it was in any way fun or entertaining. It isn't. It is just two and a half hours of dross had it been you know 80 90 minutes it might have flown through but it's just unrepentedly boring oh michael bay i there are there are no words olivia want to move on to your worst film of the year so far well one of them and that is kenneth branagh's next poirot movie death on the nile and i wasn't really mad about his take on murder on the orient express and I've had no desire whatsoever to see Death on the Nile, which almost feels like the German supermarket version of this uh, murder on the Orient Express. But why for you? Why is it there as one of the worst films of the year so far? It just, it, well, for one thing, it took 70 minutes for them to actually kill anybody, <laughs> which for a murder mystery film, you're kind of just like, ah, come on now, lads. Um, but also it was just a bit too... It lost its direction a lot of the way. Like it didn't learn any of the lessons it did, it should have taken from any of the critiques that Murder on the Orient Express got. It didn't take any of the the length critiques in, into account. It didn't take any of the critiques on how he was sort of like interpreting the character and things like that. And it kind of like it tries to then hone in on like the whole like Poirot history and why he wears a mustache and all this type of stuff. And then the explanation for why he wears a mustache doesn't make any sense. Like it's supposed to be, spoiler alert, it's supposed to be that he's hiding a big massive scar that he got in the war. But for when they actually show you where that scar is on his face, it, it, your mustache would not like cover that, nor would there be any hair that grows over that because it's so extensive. So there is no way, shape or form that 
that is an acceptable <laughs> explanation for the tash. It just doesn't make any sense. And it really annoyed me. Um, I think that like some of the members of the cast, of course, one of them being Army Hammer, there were issues there. But just basing it on the film itself, it's just not good. And it's so disappointing. And I'm such a big Agatha Christie and Poirot fan that I'm just like, just bring back David Suchet for the love of God. I actually thought I actually thought that on the Nile was was fine, and You're may, wrong. maybe even <laughs> maybe even a, a, a mild improvement over the previous one. Although I did think it was funny that uh, well, actually, it was interesting to see after after you know a year, maybe a year or two of of, of headlines about you know is Army Hammer going to be replaced here? And when he wasn't, I thought mm, I, I wonder why that was because you know we we've seen now that you know it's it's not it's certainly not easy to do that, but that you know it can be done. But then when you see that in the law, you realize okay he is all over the place in this film. I don't mean and you know and the, the performances are quite messy, but he is in a lot of this, and it might have been a bit too difficult. But I I thought it was interesting that the first. Uh, Poirot film that Kenneth Branagh gave us. Look at that cast. It had like Penelope Cruz and, and Olivia Coleman. Um, Michelle Pfeiffer was in there. You know, Judy Dench. Jo- jo- Judy Dench, Johnny Depp lovers love the fact that Johnny Depp was there. The second one, you know, you mentioned at the top there, Gordon, it's a bit like it's this is the little version or the Aldi version mm. of, of Poirot. You had Don French and Jennifer Saunders and Russell Brand. So I think the balance was a bit off. But I think aside from the fact that it's probably the first, uh, it's probably the first mustache origin film I've ever seen. It, all, it, it did give us a few hints and signs of what an amazing Poirot film made by Branagh could look like because his performance in here, he brings an awful lot of heartache and kind of, you know, anguish to the role that I haven't seen in that character in a while. So I'd love to see Branagh take one last stab at it. I'd actually give him one more shot to make the Poirot film that I think he, that I think he can make. I wonder, will he get another chance? I, I, I think Death on the Nile did reasonably well. So there's probably a chance that he may just get that last chance. Um, but I just want to move on to the actor that we love to hate on this program. Uh, <laughs> the star of Morbius. Now, Olivia, you have Morbius down here. Andy, uh, you have it on your worst list as well. Jared Leto. Uh, like it's only a matter of time probably he was going to be given a superhero movie but Morbius who has been asking for a Morbius film Andy? Hey <laughs> Really? I, I, I really like the character I really liked it in the, the animated Spider-Man series now I don't know if you can build an entire movie around it but on you know as part of a Spider-Man story that character is actually quite interesting what isn't interesting is casting Jared Leto playing Jared Leto and the fact that they have re-released this because like, the film was so bad, people were making memes and you know making jokes about the film. And then Sony thought, this is great. People are really responding to it. We just released it at the wrong time. Let's release it again. And it made like $20,000 when they re-released it. I- I'm waiting for them to do it again. There's actually a campaign to try and get them to release it again because everyone was joking <laughs> that they were busy that weekend. And I wouldn't put it past them to do it. And even Jared Leto, who he was seeing reading a script, like one of the jokes in it is that there's a line in it that says, it's Morbin time, which obviously isn't in the film. It's a, a message that the Power Rangers line. But he released a video on Instagram of him reading one. 
a script that says Morbius 2, Morbin Time. And I genuinely, he doesn't have the self-awareness to know he's being mocked. Like he really thinks, oh, these are great. People are really responding to it. And he's getting interviewed about other things. Like, yeah, we're working really hard in the sequel. You know, we're, we're taking what the fans really enjoyed about the first film. It's like, there was no fans of this film. The only people who are fans of this film are people on Reddit who are making fun of you. And you are too egotistical to realize you are the butt of the joke. You are not in on the joke. Yeah, it also seems like the director's hands were tied here. Uh, the the Swedish filmmaker who made uh, what was it? He made that alien movie with Jared. Uh, was with Jared with Jake Gyllenhaal and Ryan Reynolds. Oh, Life, which was Life. Yeah, you know, the the Venom kind of prequel, and then they changed it. And you know, that, but to be fair, it wasn't a bad film. I know, judging by your tone, you don't agree with me, but yeah, but you know what? It's probably you know. I just felt it was sort of a, a, almost a, a collage of ideas that I've seen made better before yeah. but but you know look it's fairly serviceable um as a film but andy just to stay um like you there's like with morbius like the chances of obviously getting a sequel are are probably slim to none though realistically though because the, the film hasn't fared particularly well at the box office would you be shocked if the character was to show up in one of the uh, sony spin-off films i wouldn't be i think if sony might throw him, try and throw him into Venom, like Venom, which is just inexplicably making all the money in the world. I wouldn't be shocked if they try and throw that in. But you kind of hear the behind the scenes as well, like this, like, you know, Michael Keaton shows up in a cameo and then there was a cameo in the trailer that was a different timeline to this. Matt Smith talking about his character that turned out to be a completely different one. Tyrese, you know, was saying, oh, I got this, like, you know, I get all the powers and I do this and I'm a cop and, I do, and it, none of that is in the film. I, I wouldn't be shocked if they just picked Jared Leto out because he's such, you know, for some reason, an inexplicably bankable star and threw him into the Venom film to try and get a bit bit of buzz going on this but I, I you know if we see morbius 2 i would be shocked now we saw fantastic beast 3 and this has been a very lackluster series olivia chris you have this down as one of your worst films of the year i guess that the, the second film was a bit of a hard slog and i don't even know if the if the potter purists now even had that much love for it it seems like it's been a lot of diminishing returns olivia like do, do you think they might even have to redress the, the plans to make five films here now because this third film granted it's probably had the better reviews of the three films uh but that's not saying very much i actually have not heard anyone say anything good about <laughs> secrets of dumbledore which, and it's like actually sorry that's like one friend and i absolutely hated this film with a passion because I was even like a Crimes of Grindelwald apologist for a certain period of time. Like, it's not the best, but I was like, do you know what? At least there was like a kind of point to the film. There's no point to this film. Like, this is not a Fantastic Beast film. This is a Dumbledore film. And I think that's where it's lost its way. If they just start calling it I don't know, Legends of the Wizards or something like that, then, or Wizarding World, there we go. They've already got it sort of made in the Wizarding World of Harry Potter and stuff like that. So if they just called it the Wizarding World and then had all of these like little offshoots of storylines, perfect. It's not Fantastic Beasts and that's what annoys me the most. Chris, for you, Fantastic Beasts, where does it sit with you? Um, hope, uh, very far away, hopefully. Um, I, I, I quite enjoyed the first Fantastic Beast film. I thought it was quite charming. It was almost like a screwball caper, you know, set in the 1920s. The, the character of Noose, played very well by Eddie Redmayne, was, 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 was quite charming. And it was a film about Fantastic Beasts. Uh, to kind of continue what Olivia was saying there, it transpires that the sequels, they, they really don't have any, they, you know, of course they kind of have 
you know, they're, they're keeping in line with the plot setup in the fourth film. But it seems weird that they would keep that title Fantastic Beast when we're moving so far away from the tone and from the. I'm sorry to jump know, in the, there, Chris. Like they even when you see the poster. Yeah. Fantastic Beast is really small. It and is. It's really like Secrets of Dumbledore. Like, like that's yeah. what's the selling point. It's almost as if they're trying to very, very kind of quietly erase the Fantastic Beast title. Yeah. That's yeah. true. And and it kind of, you know, this film kind of strains itself to give Newt's character things to do, uh, such as, you know, trying to rescue his brother at one stage. And, and he has to, you know, uh, engage in this weird dance with these awful looking magic scorpion creatures. And it's almost as though, you know, David Yates is saying, look, he's doing the kind of quirky stuff that, you know, made the first film so special. That's not what made the first film so special. I thought that the, the, the humanity, the, the, the actor, the human characters, also the wizard characters but the acting the performances the characterization was actually what made that fourth film uh, uh such a joy but i thought this was just a sloppy shapeless thing not much actually happens in it um i think maybe there there are issues with casting it was quite dreary um and again just overly stuffed you know it kind of you know there, there's too many people wandering around looking as though they they don't really know what they're at i will say though I don't think we're going to get five Fantastic Beast films, but I think we'd, we'd all be fools to think that Warner isn't going to figure out a way to kind of rebrand and resell us a different sort of Harry Potter film experience. And that maybe there might have been meetings where the ending of this film was choreographed in a way that if they want to, they can continue the story. But also it does, without spoiling anything, it does wrap things up that if they wanted to as well, they could come away and say, ah, the plan was always to keep it at a trilogy. We told the story, moving on. Personally, I think they're going to re... Sorry, I was going to say, personally, I think the only way that they're going to salvage it is by reworking it into an eight-part limited series going straight to HBO Max, and that's going to be the end of it, I think. Oh, good night. That sounds awful. I know, but I I just have a feeling that that's the way that they're going to go with it. Interesting times ahead um, for uh, the uh, the wizarding world. Um, but guys, time has caught up with us. Thank you so much for taking a look at some of the worst films of the year so far. Chris Wasser, Andy McCarroll and Olivia Fahey. Thank you so much for your company. We will chat to you again next week. And that is our lot for this week on We Love Movies. We'll do it all again next Sunday from 8 right here on Spin. <laughs> 